Hi, I'm Stephen from Maryland, who patiently tutored a young novice to help bring this podcast to life and send it out into the world. And I'm Al from New Zealand, his inept protege who sutures this podcast together, but always seems to have parts left over afterwards. We are Hammerama, the show which dissects specimens of hammer horror each month using the scientific principle of the die roll. I disinteered a one this month, which is Hammer's Frankenstein cycle. And so under our knife, this time is the patient zero of Hammer Horror, the vital spark which gave life to everything we discuss on this show. From 1957, the first full-color gothic frighty from Blighty, Curse of Frankenstein. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. But now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it. Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now, the monster was the master. Paul, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature. And see that you pay for these atrocities. No! Young millionaire Victor is orphaned, but inherits a stately manor and his family's fortune. Working out of a hidden lair and supported by his butleress, Justine, and mentor Paul Kremper, he takes on the identity of Baron Frankenstein and decides to use his genius for the good of mankind. The option of swooping around at night in a bat-like cloak has already been taken by another nobleman Transylvania. So instead, the Baron builds a flying metal suit. <clears throat> I mean, an artificial man created from body parts obtained from morgues and charnel houses. Unfortunately, the brain becomes damaged and the resulting creature proves impossible to control. Finally, being shot in the head, set on fire, and plunged 
into an acid bath. The Baron's enemies capture him and set up a diabolical apparatus to end his life. Will the Baron escape this treacherous fate? And can he return to his crucial research and continue to selflessly benefit the human race? Tune in the following year for further adventures of the blood-soaked scientist, the physician of incisions, Baron Frankenstein. I'm so there. Can't wait. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely the movie that I've just watched. Well, Thanks, Stephen. Well, you can almost say he made a Superman. <laughs> well, I think that was his intention, yeah. To get the body he's always wanted. Well, you know, it's it's you got sometimes you gotta build it yourself, you know, in order to get what you want. <laughs> DIY. The Ikea before Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> as much fun as this is, shall I go first with the initial thoughts? Please, please, Al, go for it. Okay. I have to lay it out on the surgical table. If it weren't for this film, odds are that we wouldn't be discussing Hammer Horror at all. And I respect it immensely. But I just don't love it. I've tried and I feel like a spoiled brat for taking this masterpiece for granted. But it's just not one that I'm ever really um, tempted to return to. Apart from the over-familiar premise, I think my reasons might lie in the difference between horror and terror. Original Frankenstein's monster Boris Karloff always claimed that he made terror, not horror films. And this is very apt here. Because while terror equates with fear, horror often indicates revulsion. And although Curse has wit and style, severed hands, bottled eyeballs, and picking little shards of broken glass out of a brain, it's just not my go-to for entertainment. Karloff's monster became a beloved children's icon, while Lee's creature only makes us want to turn away in pity and disgust. He's probably in constant agony and in a state of bewildered insanity, and we really can't blame this mindless sewing project for the horrible things that he does. But we are left in no doubt that it's Baron Victor Frankenstein who is the real monster in this film. Oh, I agree with you, because that's one of the things I love about this movie. Victor Frankenstein is front and center as evil, macabre, thieving, single-minded in his purpose all the way through. I mean, it, he is he is by far the most evil Victor Frankenstein. He's that way from a young age because it's almost like he is the epitome of a sociopath because he really does not care about anybody it starts off when he's a child when you see him there he knows there's certain things required of him because of his status as a baron but he really has no feelings behind it he has hmm. lustful tendencies which he gets fulfilled with by certain people um mm -hmm. justine um they, they fill those those human desires but there's no love there um mm. elizabeth comes he has no feeling of warmth or whatever it's just Oh, this is what I'm expected to do. And I'll save this part for my favorite scene. There's a scene that he does with her that I think would have led to another movie 
with them being in it where he would have done some nefarious things to her. So I'll leave that as a little tease mm. for now. Actually, have you having said that, I think I might have been thinking exactly the same thing, but we'll find out when you uh, when you talk about that later. Of course, we always seem to steal favorite scenes from each other. So mm, we do. Yeah, <laughs> we can't help it. We 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 think alike in a lot of ways. I know you're saying it's not one you always want to stick in and watch all the time because mm. it's not a thriller like horror of Dracula or Dracula is, where it's got the emo, the adrenaline, the emotion, the drive, good versus evil. This one is like different shades of evil. You got mm-hmm. the true evil in the in the Baron. You got the monster who right off the bat is not like Boris Karloff's monster where you could say he was um, made that way or could have could have been good. It all depends on things. He comes right off the gate trying to kill the Baron, you mm. know. So is he evil or is he just brain damaged? It's hard to say. But he go he he goes to kill just about everybody right off mm-hmm. the bat. There's really no good entity. There's no there's no force of good. You could make an argument that Paul is, but Paul is also touched with shades of gray because he started off on that path, but then deviated from the path from the Baron when he felt he was going too far. So even he's tainted. And you could argue maybe that um, Elizabeth would be the only character that is good, but it's not like she's doing anything to combat evil. It just happens that evil is around her. And I guess even Elizabeth, in some ways, is manipulating her situation. It's questionable whether she actually has any genuine feelings for Victor because she doesn't even know him. But she knows that by marrying him, she's set up for life. She's going to be looked after. She gets all the benefits of his family fortune. So really, I don't think she's a a completely moral person either. Now you say that, it makes me think that way too. But out of the group that we meet, you know, the main characters, she's mm. the most moral. Because Justine yeah. obviously is um, also trying to play the Baron to get his money and status, you know, by doing mm-hmm. the different things. And is she really pregnant or not? Is it, you know, because mm-hmm. she goes right to the blackmail, it leads to her yeah. demise in some of those mm. aspects. So it's almost soap opera type tendencies. But the yeah. first um, two-thirds of the movie, it's, it's a totally different type of movie than the last third. Sure, sure. And you having mentioned Paul, I think he's probably the most fortunate uh, supporting character who's ever appeared in a, in a Hammer Frankenstein film because if you think about the person that the Baron becomes, in any of the sequels, Paul would not survive. That betrayal at the end of this film, Paul would be dead meat very, very shortly once the Baron got out. But somehow Paul Kremper just stands alone as the person who betrayed the Baron, but somehow got away with it. Or we assume that he got away with it because we never hear about him again, do we? Makes you wonder, you know, there, there could be a story between the, the movies that could be written there. Absolutely. Having hinted at favorite scenes, Stephen, do you want to go on to talk about those? Oh, my favorite scene does involve Elizabeth and the Baron. Mm-hmm. And this is, I believe, after Paul left, or one of, the, one of the first times Paul left. Elizabeth is talking about, I want to know more about your work. I want to know what's going on. I could help you. And the Baron's like, well, maybe you can help me later. But it's the way he looks at her. Mm. and eyes the whole body and takes a look at the face mm. you can tell what she's thinking about doing and helping and what he's thinking about having having her help 
are two totally different things. And I could see where a Bride of Frankenstein movie could have come from this. Yes. And she would have been the body of the bride. And mm-hmm. it, it, they still could have done it because that could have been how this could be the unwritten story. He goes and seeks them out, does in Paul. She mm-hmm. suffers a tragedy during it. So he uses her body to mm-hmm. make his, his bride. So literally she would be the bride of Frankenstein. That's perfect, Stephen. That's perfect because my my own thinking, that's better than, than my version. My version was that he goes back into the lab after the creature is finished with Justine and there he has a female cadaver already for his purposes. He doesn't even have to go out and dig it up. It's already in his lab waiting for him. So that was another angle. Maybe the female creature would be a an amalgam of Justine and Elizabeth. Ooh, this is creepy stuff. <laughs> to, my, to my knowledge, I don't think there ever was a Bride of Frankenstein type version with the hammer. I haven't seen every single one of them, so I could be wrong. You would know more than I would. Well, there's a Frankenstein-created woman, of course, Hammer's take on the Bride of Frankenstein, but it's not. It's actually something quite, quite different. But, you know, maybe that's as close as they as they come. I was just thinking of something else, Stephen. Elsa Lanchester's bride, she's swathed in bandages from neck to foot in exactly the same way as Christopher Lee's creature is in Curse of Frankenstein. So you've even got a weird continuity working there. Exactly. And I think it's a smart continuity to use because unlike the Universal film, which had a budget going with it, this one had a tight budget because mm-hmm. it's Hammer. And what's best to do? Well, if we put him on bandages for most of his body, we only have to do the makeup on the head. Mm. And of course, mm. the, 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 the great reveal, which... Everybody knows they sped up the footage, you know, so it's just yes. boom, so you can get right to the look. It's an interesting take of the Frankenstein creature because I, I, I enjoy the different versions I've seen in movies over the decades, you know, where people take it and they, they try to make it their own and they try not to be like the Jack Pierce version, the iconic one. I enjoy this version because you can tell it's a mismatch of pieces with flesh that's in various stages of decay, I enjoy the makeup of it. I think I think the Jack Pierce version it's, it's the iconic version still. It's, it's oh, of the, course it's it the is. Yeah. But this is a good mm-hmm. this is a good rendition considering they're trying to avoid being too much like the Universal. My favorite scene. Baron Frankenstein obviously made his creature in this film, but he also made Peter Cushing into a horror star. Cushing's already my favorite actor. And despite my overfamiliarity with this film and his role, I was once again struck by what a revelation his performance is in Curse of Frankenstein, to the point that everything else, even the creature itself, is merely a backdrop for the bloody Red Baron. So my favourite scene is really a series of micro-sequences. I'm thinking about the Baron absent-mindedly wiping his gory hand on his lapel while he's amputating a corpse's head. And similarly to what you said, Stephen, about how the Baron looked at Elizabeth when he was talking about her helping him, there's a scene where he gives Paul this really calculating stare 
when he promises him that he will get the brain that he requires. He's not so much looking at Paul as looking at Paul's head. And if I were him, I'd, I'd be getting out of there. But my most favorite is the icy promise that he gives to the suspended corpse of the creature when he glances up at it and he says that he will give it life again. He makes that sound like a terrible threat. And maybe that's the reason behind the title Curse of Frankenstein. He damns the already dead by forcing life on them to create an existence worse than death. And when you think about that, this makes the Baron far more terrifying than any of the creatures uh, he could ever create. Oh, I agree with you on the, on those things. And I've heard some people say, like, as the movies go on, the Baron gets more Eve or whatever. And I'm thinking, this is the this is the entry point. This is the the epicenter of the whole franchise, and he's already off the charts evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's flat, like we said, he's murdering people. He's already thinking about everybody as disposable parts. I mean, he has no emotions at all except about his work. That's it. Mm -hmm. I, I can't see how he gets worse. I can only see him being, I mean, status quo. I can't really see him getting worse than this. I might be surprised. I mean, I have seen some of the later ones, but I, I, I don't see him getting any worse than this. <laughs> I think you might be surprised, but let's just leave it there. <laughs> Right, I'm going to go on to the reviews, if that, if you're okay with that, Stephen. Let's hear what people had to say, because I think it's going to be a mixed bag. <laughs> it is a very mixed bag. That's very timely that you mentioned that, because I'm, I'm going to offer something slightly different to our usual format here. So for the reviews from the film's release year of 1957, I'm going to contrast reactions from either side of the Atlantic. So in Britain, a pearl-clutching monthly film bulletin declared that the story of Frankenstein was sacrificed by an ill-made script, poor direction and performance, and above all, a preoccupation with disgusting, not horrific, charnelry. So that's a wonderful last word, which I'm now going to try and get into one sentence per day. But I think that's probably the best thing about that puritanical outpouring from the monthly film bulletin. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the US, Variety magazine wrote, Peter Cushing gets every inch of drama from the leading role, making almost believable the ambitious urge and diabolical accomplishment. Direction and camera work are of a high order. Now, this is interesting, not wanting to rake over information that we can find anywhere else, but we know that in Britain, the critics hated Curse of Frankenstein, but the public loved it. In the US, it was also a gigantic hit. It actually created Hammer Horror, but it seems that in the US, the critics also appreciated it, which I find, I find really interesting because you would think that the US and their love of Universal and Boris Karloff's monster might be more hostile to the idea of a different Frankenstein creature, but it seems that that wasn't necessarily the case. I understand where you're coming from, but also being it was 1957, Frankenstein monster cycle ended in the late 40s with... Um... But Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I think, was the final one. Hmm. Um, so there has been this period of time where Universal had the Creature of the Black Lagoon series, but nothing with Frankenstein. 
your Dracula or any of that stuff. So I think this is a good time to hit that younger audience with the color and mm. the stuff in the modern take. And I think, I think that's why I was able to be such a hit with the critics and the audiences mm-hmm. in America. It's great cinematography, great music, and Peter Cushing. Exactly. Owns yeah. owns the role. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's certainly different enough. Obviously, the focus is not on the monster. But to bring us right up to date, at the end of May this year, New Zealand's best example of Gothic revival architecture, Old St. Paul's Cathedral in Wellington, hosted a Gothic film screening and costume party. The organiser of this very successful event, Jane Nye, was kind enough to report back to me on how the screening of their selected film went. Stephen, can you guess what that film might have been? Throw it out there. The the Curse of Frankenstein? (laughs) You must be psychic. The Curse of Frankenstein. So she was kind enough to let me know how that went down with a 2022 audience. So Jane writes... The first screening we held was for Halloween 2020, when we showed Murnau's Nosferatu. This was the impetus for The Curse. Nosferatu was very well received, but because Halloween was cancelled by COVID the following year, we decided to screen another scary flick, but in May this year. Monsters probably don't really care for special occasions. Hammer's Curse of Frankenstein was chosen for its brevity, pews are uncomfortable and humans have short attention spans, For its cult value, it would therefore probably draw in a diverse crowd of cinephiles and costume fans, and for its tie-in to the gothic. To be honest with you, I'm not sure who was aware of Hammer Horror prior to the event, but the crowd was as diverse as hoped, and ranged in age, as you can see from the photographs on our Facebook page. For the evening, I had a real scientist create a laboratory on-site, complete with coloured bubbling glassware. But no flame, this is a 156-year-old wooden building. A DJ played Bauhaus and Alice Cooper, etc., while patrons slash monsters drank our themed cocktail, Dangerous Knowledge. So basically, I combined many Frankenstein and monster elements, including ideas from Shelley's book to highlight the film and bring it into the 21st century by way of a 19th century building. Now, judging by the Facebook Uh, page images which Jane described, Curse of Frankenstein did indeed lure a large and varied group of people to the cathedral for a night of gothic revelry, which says a lot for the enduring power of this 65-year-old classic. So Jane, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to come back to me and report on this event. And I don't know about you, Stephen, but it makes me really, really jealous we watch these movies at home, but imagine seeing it on a big screen with a cathedral full of um, freaks. That would have been amazing. Oh, it would have been. What a shared experience. I wish we, no, I wish we would both would have been there. Me too. So in another departure, we wanted to take a fresh approach at examining this much-discussed film, so we asked an expert. Makeup artist Whitney Coyazzo is one of the stars of the Decades of Horror Classic Era podcast, and Stephen's exclusive and in-depth interview with Whitney will appear in a few days' time on episode 118 of the main show, the Diecast Movie Podcast. So for Hammerama, we wanted to know what Whitney thought of the prosthetic and makeup effects devised for Curse of Frankenstein and for the subsequent films in this series. So take it away, Whitney. 
I just absolutely love how colorful it is. I love the blood. I, I mean, it's, I think the blood is just something that I'll always say is an iconic thing to see. And I feel like it's been influential in other things. Uh, I feel like it's influential to Tim Burton for Sleepy Hollow, among others. It's special to look at for um, certain characters and creatures thing that I love the most and seeing the colors in the hair and seeing in skin even is that mm. when we, you really take a step back as an artist, as a makeup artist, you have to realize not everything is a solid color. Because like even in um, seeing hair and your own hair or in, in your own pigments, it's not just a solid color. There's, there's fine, there's finer things. There's different shades, different pigments. And I love seeing texture. And I feel like I see that in hammer a lot of times, especially with the curse of Frankenstein. I think my, that's my favorite look, especially because I'm not a fan of contact lenses. I, I have been trained and I have been taught to use contact lenses, but I don't like touching people's eyes. Therefore, I don't do it. And so when I see the, the eye, um, yes. that one eye of um, Christopher Lee, like, I just, it blows me away seeing how there's like one eye that's different than the other. And I think that's just, um, that's a special look. It's different for, for that creature. <laughs> Speaking of blown away, the thing about that makeup is that it does evolve through the film because of various things that happen to the poor creature. Do you feel they were successful in presenting a mm -hmm. completely different sort of look to what we had been used to up until then? I feel like it's different um, because there is some there there are some elements in the in the texture in the neck area where you see that it's a little bit, um, it's not all together. The skin's not all together mm. in the neck area that he has there. It does look like it's kind of choppy. You do see where things are misshapen or very like fleshly loose, like around the neck, around the cheek area. So that, that does look like it's, there is something disproportionate and, and accident there. So yeah, I, I definitely can see that in the lower regions of the face. And yet somehow through that makeup, Christopher Lee's still able to emote, um, mm -hmm. which I guess, I mean, this is your area, but I guess that's the essence of a good makeup that the performer can still project through it. Yeah, I mean, it looked like he carried through with that one pretty well. And what helps is like when I would like to hope that during this time they had people watching that were working, the makeup artist doing last looks, just making sure everything looks okay before doing the next take, the next scene. And I felt like that was very convincing with how the things were projected and how he moved around. Thank you, Whitney. We are so privileged and so honoured to have a professional makeup artist to actually give her views on the Hammer Frankenstein makeups. So listen for future episodes when we look at other films in this series and get to hear Whitney's views on them. Alistair, mm. merchandise for Frankenstein, Curse of Frankenstein, there are a lot of things out there. There are figures, mm -hmm. there's sculptures, there's pictures. I mean, there's a plethora of them. And I know last time when we did The Mummy, I talked about the figure, you know, and I've, I don't want to go there. I want to go and do something like I did with Quatermass in the pit. I want to go out there with something I think I wish would have happened. And I mm -hmm. really wish that Victor Frankenstein would have survived into this modern age and he could have had himself his own franchise. I mean, people always think of Bill the Bear. Why not 
Frankenstein's Build-A-Body. Now imagine you could take your kids to Frankenstein's Build-A-Body and they can learn anatomy, chemistry, how to sew, you know, some medical skills, how to procure body parts indiscriminately, and how to hopefully at the end of the at the end of the session make a functional creature from the body parts they are able to find at various locations. Most of these Frankenstein build a bodies are going to be near morgues or places where they can find fresh body parts at a convenient thing. So Frankenstein's build a body. It won't teach kids about morality, but it will teach them about science that their schools would never do. <laughs> I think that's absolutely wonderful. If it, if it wasn't for the fact that the end result is probably going to be an army of artificial and probably quite angry creatures unleashed on the public, I'd say that's, the, that's a really good idea. <laughs> There's always a drawback. I mean, geez, that's why you have to make Uh, sure they sign the contract. Nobody ever reads the really fine, fine print. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, I'm I'm sure that's a wrinkle that we can iron out somehow. Uh, Yes, thanks, Stephen. I'll look forward to seeing how that turns out. I think I think that's wonderful. My my only my only question would be when you look at the creature in Curse of Frankenstein, do you really want to go to Victor Frankenstein to learn about sewing? I'm not sure if he's the right person <laughs> to talk to about that. <laughs> and my merchandise pick is the recently published issue 48 of the always excellent Little Shop of Horrors magazine. Not only does it feature a photograph of Stephen and some artwork from myself, but an utterly fascinating article about the restoration of The Curse of Frankenstein for the recent Warner Brothers Archive two-disc Blu-ray release. We have an unusual addition to this section this month. Jeff Owens of the Classic Horrors Club podcast has sent in this excerpt. Hi, Stephen Alistair. This is Jeff Owens. If it's not too late, I want to offer an option for the merchandise segment of your Curse of Frankenstein episode. I just received yesterday, imported from the UK, a Tubbs rubber duck based on the creature as portrayed by Christopher Lee. Let me read the product description quickly and then I'll embellish. Quote, this duck comes in a collector's bathtub display box with officially licensed logos and able to stack on top of other figures. These are highly detailed features and made from high-quality PVC. They are approximately 3.54 inches tall when outside of the tub display." I'll personally add that the side of the bathtub has the Hammer logo and reads Hammer House of Horror. There are three others in this series, Dracula, the Mummy, and the Werewolf from Curse of the Werewolf. To the extent you can say that a hideously scarred creature with a bowl haircut is cute, then you can say this Curse of Frankenstein rubber duck is just downright adorable. I ordered mine from HorrorMerchStore.com, where it's currently on sale for $19.99, $10 off the $29.99 suggested retail price. Thank you so much, Jeff. That was an item of merchandise that I must admit I wasn't even aware of. Sounds like fun. So listeners, if you want to hear more from Jeff, check out the Classic Horrors Club podcast, which he does with Rich Chamberlain. Magnificent show, well worth listening to. Right, so we have arrived at our final thoughts. So Stephen, would you like to go first? 
Sure, Al. And um, I really enjoy this movie. And I, I go back to what you said earlier. This, this is not one I think that some people are going to watch over and over again in every year. But Peter Cushing's performance is the movie. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so. I mean, it's he's basically he's in almost every scene, so he carries the movie on his back and takes it across, and he buys into his characterization of the Baron with zeal. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. amazing how he's able to pull that performance off. And not many actors can do a performance like that and still be a likable actor in a sense where I'm talking about where people are like cheering him on. I think this goes to where he's able to play good guys and bad guys. But I mean, mm-hmm. you could see from the Baron Frankenstein structure why George Lucas wanted him in star Wars Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. he can just play it so well and so cool, meaning cold and that kind of thing. And really the whole cast, all the, all the cast is excellently, they do excellent performances. It's well done, but really they're all second bananas to Peter Cushing, even Christopher Lee. I mean, you know, I love Christopher Lee, but really it's, it's a it's a small role compared mm-hmm. to the rest, but it is the start of his career with the Hammer horror that really you know builds up to where he goes into much bigger and better things. Everybody's got to start sure. somewhere, and he mm-hmm. does. But all of them do great performances. I really can't find a flaw in the movie, you know, except that they didn't do that Bride sequel. That's the only, but it's not mm. this movie. That was the movie that should have followed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, those are the, those are excellent thoughts, and you're leading me nicely into into my main initial thought. But before I go there, I just thought I should uh, mention the fact that although this is in many ways the very first color Hammer horror, it contains two stunt sequences which really, really horrify me even now. In fact, I almost have to turn away. The first one is when he pushes the professor from the balcony. And ironically, the stuntman, and I say ironically because the Baron wants the brain, ironically, the stuntman appears to land on his head. I don't care if it's a soft landing. When I see when I see that scene, it actually really, really turns my stomach. And I don't know how the stuntman survived that without breaking his neck. But it's 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 hard to watch. Obviously, it's perfect because this is a film that's meant to horrify you. But oh, that's nasty. And the second one. And I'm not entirely sure if this is a living stunt person or a dummy. If it's a dummy, then it's done extremely well and I've no reason to feel upset about it. But when the creature, on fire, falls through the skylight into that acid bath, perhaps it's because of Hammer's budget, but that acid bath... looks like it's the smallest it possibly could be like it will only just accommodate a human being so when that stuntman falls through the skylight and into that bath he has no room to get that wrong and he's either gonna smash his forehead at one end or he's gonna smash his ankles at the other 
And that just really horrifies me again, seeing him fall into that bath. He does it perfectly, thank God, because, you know, he would have had, I don't, I don't think he would have even had an inch either way. Um, but if it's a dummy, then I've just made a fool of myself and we don't need to worry. <laughs> I know you're saying like you, the acid bath. I always find it funny that in all these movies where they, where they show these acid bath, they're like these huge things. And I'm thinking, yes. why would they need something that yes. huge? Of course, I'm not, I mean, I don't know. I've never had to have an acid bath or acid tub or tube mm-hmm. in my house. Good. But, you know, it's which which if you ever visit a place and they have an acid bath type thing, you know mm-hmm. that's not a place to stay. It's just no. something bad is going to happen there. Get out. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But just to move on to my main point, and it's related to to what you talked about, Stephen, I'm always struck by the irony that my favorite actor, whose arguably most defining role was as a driven innovator who restored the departed to life, was himself resurrected by cutting-edge science in 2016. Now, I'm referring to the return of Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, of course. Like Frankenstein, the revolutionary technology used was often met with suspicion and even feverish accusations of sacrilege. But personally, I felt wonder and joy at seeing Peter Cushing so respectfully represented on the big screen once more. And I'd like to think that Cushing himself would have been flattered and probably highly amused. And I'm very excited by the rumours of Digital Tarkin reappearing in the upcoming Andor series. I had, I'm also with you. I had no problem with them bringing and utilising him again. Hmm. Um, that way, I know everybody's different. And, and But I mean, the alternative is to recast and mm-hmm. and then people would be upset well, you recast the role and mm-hmm. so you you could never win I've, i enjoyed it but now there's a we're at a time where we have to decide what movie are we doing next yeah we have to roll the die okay in the words of the great man himself you may far when ready okay lucky number six which is the experimental <sighs> 1970s my favorite and your favorite decade of yes so i think that it might be we have something special organized for our next experimental 1970s film Stephen, shall we tell the listeners what it's going to be well they they heard one person on this podcast already whitney Mm -hmm. and she's going to be making a return appearance but not by herself with who alistair why, it's one of Whitney's amazing co-ghosts from the decades of horror, the classic era. The divine Daphne Mineriensdorf. And they have kindly agreed to join us both to talk about the vampire lovers. And we just can't wait to have this conversation with Whitney and Daphne. And I'm sure that it will present viewpoints on this very controversial film that you probably haven't heard elsewhere and that is after all our main mo in producing this podcast and i haven't seen this movie in 35 plus years 
<laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not sure if either of us should because, at least on my Blu-ray, it reproduces a poster which says in very, very large letters, not for the emotionally immature. So... <laughs> Well, that takes away half the, half the viewing audience right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have come to the end of our episode about The Curse of Frankenstein. As I said, the patient zero of Hammer Horror. So it's nice that we are going once again from the very beginning of Hammer to Hammer's final days. But in the case of The Vampire Lovers, as we'll discuss, it actually gave the ailing Hammer a shot in the arm. It extended Hammer's life for a few more years. So we're really looking forward to this one. So I'm going to say goodbye. But before I do, I just want to say Chanori. <laughs> and are you going to say goodbye, Stephen? <laughs> Look, you just, I couldn't follow that, but I want to say thanks everybody for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoy it. Send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com to let us know what your feelings are as we've had some listeners in prior episodes that have done before and we can share it in our upcoming episodes. So tell us what you think and I hope everybody has a great day. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. <laughs>